This is Gestoras. Today's episode is in English. El episodio de hoy de Gestoras es en inglés. Pueden leer una transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. Gestoras Podcast brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers, sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English each week. Jacqueline Flores is the producer of the Latinx Theatre Commons at HowlRound. Previously, she was at Bully Mammoth Theatre Company in Washington, D.C., where she produced the theatre special events and led the company Pool Fund. She has also worked at the Public Theatre in New York City and Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival. She was selected as a member of First Theatre Producers of Colors cohort and is a two-time recipient of the National New Play Network's Producer in Residence Grant. Hello, on this episode of Historas, we are so delighted to welcome Jacqueline Flores, um, a young theater maker and theater producer uh, working here in the United States. Jacqueline, we are so grateful that you were able to make time to be here on Historas. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, to be here and be in conversation with you, Jimena. It's very exciting to have you because uh, from what I know about you, you've been from a very early age, uh, really an activist in the theater scene and in making theater happen. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Do, did you have, do you come from an acting background? Is your family a family of actors and, and, and artists? Yeah, my family is not in the arts at all. Um, so I'm not sure where I got it from. Um, yeah, I grew up with immigrant parents from Honduras and Mexico, and they were very, my mom cleaned houses, my dad still works in construction till this day, um, and I decided I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> um, and so from a young age, I, I would memorize monologues from TV shows, perform them for my family in the living room, and then when it came time to decide where I wanted to go to college and what I wanted to study. I couldn't think of anything else but theater. And so I went into college thinking I wanted to be an actor, a professional actor. Um, and I did that track for about two years. And then uh, between sophomore and junior year of college, I had an internship at a dance festival. And I realized there was just so much more out there. And I also I got to work on the admin side of the arts and saw a lot of the disparities um, between like programming and access to the arts and was just introduced essentially to a whole new world um, and decided that I wanted to work at making change and work in arts administration rather than be an actor. So when I returned to school in the fall, I changed my track from acting to general. So you sort of imagined yourself into being an artist, even though you didn't come from an artistic background, and then you further imagined yourself into being an, an, arts, an arts manager at Hithoda, uh, and that's what led you to now to, to where you are now. Yes. What kinds of disparities were you observing? What was it that first caught your attention and you said, hmm, and, and what made you think, I can do something about this, or I should do something about this? 
Yeah, well, I interned at a dance festival in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And, you know, people who can afford to go to the Berkshires in the summer, take a vacation there, are often wealthier. And so I noticed that, and I noticed that the audiences were often white. And this festival also had free programming daily. And I noticed that the audiences for the free programming were more diverse, different ages, different colors, different ethnicities and races. And so I started kind of putting dots together um, and and also um, was surrounded. My intern cohort was incredible and all of them also taught me more about the arts. And I realized they had incredible experiences that I didn't even come close to um, just because of the socioeconomic class I grew up in. Um, and so the lack of um, access to arts education that I had, and that made me want to make it make it better and um, make programming more accessible for people regardless of their race, gender, socioeconomic class, location, um, and and I don't know that I don't know why I thought I could do it. Um, I think I had I mean I had incredible mentors throughout college that definitely believed in me, and so that helped um but yeah i certainly i i i didn't know yeah like like you're saying i i imagined i imagined a future for me that did not exist and that i had no kind of um what would you call it like something to follow of like this is what you do i was just like let's see what happens Right, and it seems like in in imagining this 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 future for yourself, you were doing it because you it came from a place of care, right? It sounds like it came from a place of care of creating opportunities for other people, not just uh, as you were saying, observing these friends and these colleagues who had had these paths that were very different from yours. That you could create that path for yourself, and in doing so, that could create paths for other people. Yeah, exactly, and I especially think back to to the community where I grew up in, and I hope that kids. Um, have more access to the arts, Have are able to go see professional shows sooner than when I was able to see my first professional show. So I think a lot of my drive to do this is also rooted in like make, making things um, more accessible for the community I grew up in as well. What city is it that you grew up in and what was your professional show that you saw? Yeah, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And the first professional show I saw was The Little Mermaid. And it was after, um, it was a national tour after my senior year of high school. One of my friend's moms um, took me to go see it as my graduation present, which was really, really special. Um, and I, yeah, I will never, I will never forget that. So. That is beautiful. Yeah. And ever since then, ever you started on this path, um, I think the word to describe it is you've become a force of nature, right? Um, because you were the first, I believe, first uh, gen- the first first generation American recipient of the National New Play Network um, Award. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what that consisted of and, and what you did with that award? Yeah, so the National New Play Network um, is a service organization, um, and I was able to receive their producer in residence grant two years in a row. And they, the grant places the recipient at a different theater around the country. And 
the goal is that they provide funding for that theater so that um, the recipient is able to gain experience and the theater is also able to have somebody else on staff. And so I was placed at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company um, and I was there for two years and it was incredible, an incredible experience. I'm so thankful for NNPN, so thankful for Woolly, um, for everything I got to learn. I, I got to work in the artistic department and then when the pandemic hit and we they're kind of the managing director also needed some help. I got to be both the artistic director and the managing director's assistant. Mm. So I got to have my hands in all of the things, which was really, really awesome. And, and yeah. that's working with Maria Goyanes at Maria Goyanes yes. at, at Woolly Mammoth. Yeah, Maria Goyanes and Emeka Abe. That's a gift. Yes, it was. It was such a gift. Yeah, I learned so much from them. Did you get to choose Wooly or did Wooly choose you? How did that process work of where you ended um, up? Yeah, uh, Maria, I knew Maria from my time at the public theater in New York. And so we both came to DC at, on a similar timeline. And I had um, basically just updating her every few months of like, this is what I'm doing. If, if you should ever need some help, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> um and so there was one day where um, she approached me and said, we're thinking about applying for this grant and we think you would be a great person to apply it with. Like, do you want to come on board and see what happens? And I was like, absolutely. Um, so, I, yeah, I got to do that, which was really awesome. You didn't say you had to think about it for a while or? No. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And what is it about working with with Woolly Mammoth that that was was most interesting to you or most exciting for you? What did you learn there? What are some takeaways that you had from that experience? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I should say that the pandemic started on like my eleventh month working there. <laughs> so, so my learnings are, um, you know, I learned a lot, and they're also layered with going through a pandemic while working in the art sector, working in the theater. Um, and so I learned a lot about leadership, watching Maria and Emika and how they led an organization, um, definitely prior to the pandemic, because that was also, I'm sure you, you know this, but, um, you know, the previous artistic director was a founding artistic director. And so Maria was the first artistic director after him and watching her in spaces as a Latina as well, um, taking the lead, expressing her opinion, leading an entire organization was so incredible. And then watching how she and Emika handled the pandemic and took care of us and prioritized artists and thinking of innovative ways to reach out to our community and make sure that they were okay and make sure that we were able to provide some sort of like comfort and relief um, during a really dark time was really awesome. And it well, I think it created a bond with everyone who worked there, um, you know, as we all work from home behind our computers, but we're trying to, yeah. to make something um, out of a really dark time. 
Yeah. And it seems like based on what I've heard you say before in other places and what I've read um, things that you've written, it seems like this idea of community is a very central value to you in addition to the idea of access. And I wanted to, to explore that a little bit more about what are the what are the fires in you that animate you to do the work that you do? Like what are the what are the values that animate your work? Yeah, community is definitely one of them. And in in my current role, you know, the Latinx Theater Commons is a movement and we use a consensus-based approach. And so I think consensus-based approaches and collaborative um, leadership models are two things that I'm really passionate about. And I'm excited to see how, as I see more theaters adapt collaborative leadership um, models, I'm excited to see the data in a few years as a nerd. I'm very excited about the data in a few years that shares um, that shares how that's impacted organizations. Um, because I think it's really important to not, I think that having collaborative leadership models is helpful because you don't get too in your head about something and you get to hear different perspectives. And it's so important, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm certainly passionate about some things, um, but I always find it helpful when other people also share their passions and when we can create sure. programming that impacts a multitude of people. And I like that idea that you're, that you're bringing, which is that collaborative work not only brings other great ideas to the table that you don't think about, but it's a good check about what you said, not getting too much in your own head um, about things. It's a really good way to sort of like get, get out of that space. Right. And since this uh, podcast, this podcast is going out to audiences in, in, you know, in Latin America, North America, Europe, um, not everyone might know. Uh, well, HowlRound, certainly people in North America for sure know what HowlRound is, but some of our audiences might not know what HowlRound is or what the Latin Theater Commons is. Could you talk a little bit about what is HowlRound and what is Latinx, the Latinx Theater Commons and what is your role there? What do you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Latinx Theater Commons uh, is a movement, consensus-based um, movement. And it started actually nearly 10 years ago, which is really crazy. Um, I'm the producer for the LTC. And the way this began was actually um, Karen Zacarias, who is a playwright, in 2012, was doing a fellowship at Arena Stage, and she had some funds left over. Um, and so she decided with her funds to bring together seven other Latinx theater makers and herself to be in conversation about the state of the American theater and Latinx representation within it. And so mm. they had this like day long conversation about like, how, what are we going to do? What resources do we have? How can we increase Latinx representation across the U.S.? And um, that group was of several people, including um, Karen, Jose Luis Valenzuela, Lisa Portes, Lalo Rivas. And um, during their conversation, you know, Lisa, I believe, had recently become the head of the directing department at DePaul and they had this incredible new theater. And she was like, I have this wonderful space that we could use. And then Jose Luis was like, I'm planning to do a festival, you know, in two years, like we could gather there. And so they all started sharing what was coming up and where they could um, bring people together. And that resulted in the Latinx theater commons. 
Um, and a year later, in October 2013, was the first national convening of the LTC. Um, and it gathered, I think it was around 75 to 80 Latinx theater makers from around the country. Wow. And it was the largest convening of Latinx theater makers in more than 20 years, which is wow. insane because 75 people is not a lot of people, you know, <laughs> in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Um, and so that's how the LTC began. And from the beginning, it was very much a um, horizontal leadership model. Um, the way we define consensus is not that everybody agrees, everybody says yes to whatever we are proposing, but that everybody agrees to move forward and that you trust that um, the individuals who are there and who are making decisions know are, are making the, the decisions that are in the best interest of everyone. There's an agreement not to agree, but an agreement to keep things moving. Right. Yes. 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 So we have a steering committee of about 60 people. And so it's hard to get 60 people in a Zoom room together to make decisions. And so I think the other, or I know the other um, agreement that we all have is that if you can't attend a meeting, there may be decisions made. And we all trust that the people that are there are making the best decision, the, the decisions that are best mm. for the group. And sometimes, you know, it, it ha we want to open it up to everyone and I send emails and I say, please let me know by X date. Um, but that's, that's how our approach works. And it's been that way for 10 years. Um, and I really love it. And I love that we, yeah. we are led by, by the people. Yeah. When you talk about these decisions, what kind of decisions specifically are you making? What What is the work of the of LTC right now? Yeah. So, for example, our programming is um, right now we're on the we're about to enter the third year of a three year slate of programming, which what came out in twenty nine was decided in twenty nineteen, but because of the pandemic, timelines right. had to <laughs> shift. But um, so when that was decided, and when I'll talk about like how how this will happen this coming year. So this summer we'll release a uh, proposal for pitches for anyone in the community who believes that their projects align with our values and um, would benefit from being in partnership with us to submit a proposal for programming. And we have a committee that reviews all of the proposals um, and narrows it down to a few. And then we take those proposals, like the, the quote unquote top ones, and the entire steering committee reviews them. And then we have a conversation about them and what is in line with LTC values and what we believe our next three years of programming um, should be. And so that's what I'm like, those decisions. It's not like, you know, I'm as the producer deciding what happens or two people are deciding what happens. We really um, consult everyone and think about yeah. making sure we have a variety of ways in which we are engaging with people um, and providing different resources. So it's truly deeply collaborative, right? Because you have so yes. many, so many people involved and, and is your role in part to, to coordinate that process? 
Yes. Yes, that's my role. It's a lot of doodle poles. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, and, and facilitating conversations. And is LTC um, focused on, on uh, Latinas working here in the United States or is it international? What is the, what is the main constituency uh, for LTC? It's, for now, it's been North America. Um, so we have committee members who live in the U.S., um, in Canada, and in Mexico. Um, and we've, but we've had people attend our programming who are also um, from Central America, um, different, different continents. Um, and then our programming there was an international convening that we we partner with the Latino Theater Company in 2017. Um, and I think there's hopes to do something international again, which is exciting. Even more doodle polls, though. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you've been talking about these productions, right? And this, this three-year cycle, is that accurate? It's a three-year cycle of planning yes. of productions. Um, so... Uh, for folks, again, who are not familiar with the work of HowlRound or LTC, what does production mean? Does it mean that then um, the group puts those on stage somewhere? That what is, what is, what is involved yeah. in them? Yeah, the programming is different. Um, so I will say this last year uh, we did a comedy new play festival called Comedy Carnival. And all of, I will also share that all of our programming has a certain um, disruption it's trying to make. So for example, um, the Comedy Carnival was a festival that was pitched to us by steering committee member Amelia Costa-Powell. And she was basically tired of all the Latinx trauma that we see on stage. And yeah. said, you know, we are such joyous people. We also laugh. <laughs> We're also really funny, and I want to showcase that. Thank you. And, yeah. <laughs> um, there was a whole festival, yeah, and uh, we requested playwrights to submit their plays, went through a selection process. Um, 11 artists came to Denver and showcased their work, and then we invite um, theater leaders from around the country to come and see this work. And then the hope is that they get to take it to their theaters and um, continue sharing, sharing the work. So Wonderful. it's really exciting. Yeah, and two of the plays have actually received world premieres. So that is really awesome. To, yeah, world premiere, um, full productions. Bravo, and that's wonderful. And the way you're presenting these plays and presenting these works is from a place of abundance. It's like, here's yes. the talent that is out here. Here's what's here's what we are capable of creating, and here's why you might you really want to bring this to your communities and, and right, invest in these right. plays. Right. Yes. Yeah. And then this year we have uh, a different kind of programming that's less public. Um, it's the designer and director collaboratorio, and that is going to bring 37 participants to Portland, Oregon. And the intervention there is that um, Tara Houston, who's a steering committee member who originally proposed this project, um, wanted to talk through ways of disrupting hierarchical structures within the theater rehearsal process. And how do we um, build more horizontal structure and be more collaborative 
um, which, you know, people are doing around the country. However, the, the traditional model of, of theater in the United States is very hierarchical. And so yeah. we're bringing together artists from around the country for what we're calling a sort of residency. And they're each going to be in teams and going to spend some uninterrupted time, a few days, um, to think through these ways of, of working together collaborati- co- collaboratively, sharing um, how they're approaching you know, their work. Um, and I'm really excited because you know, all of these people likely have the, their collaborative practices. So I'm excited for all of them to be in one room together yeah. and be able to share that. Um, and then the goal is that we then have like a report at the end that we share with the field of this is this is how these artists yeah these are how this is how these artists are working like this is here you go take take it or leave it oh that is great and then you're harnessing this power that you were saying earlier right about the collaborative work and, and yeah. sometimes uh, you know this better than anyone the theater makers sometimes often especially if you're in a position of responsibility you're so isolated right mm-hmm. and you're working you know, you're responsible for all of these people and all these things to happen, but you're working on your own. So what you were saying earlier about the power of collaboration and the power of coming together to get out of your head and and also the power of solidarity, you know, to know that you're not alone, that these are problem solvers with you. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful initiative. Yeah. And I think that's one of my favorite parts about this role is, so I work with volunteer steering and advisory committee members who all have their own roles, right, outside of working with the LTC. They are professors, they're directors, they're designers. Um, and oftentimes, maybe less so now, but oftentimes they're the only or one of a few Latina people in the room. And so when I get to facilitate conversations where it's predominantly Latina people in the room, it's so exciting to watch. And it's so exciting yeah. to see these ideas and see the light in their eyes and see them bounce off each other um, and bring programming like the Comedy Carnival, like the Collaboratorio to life. Like that, that is one of my favorite parts. That is why I do this. Um, and so to be able to provide that space for people is one of my favorite things. Oh, yeah, that's... Yes, I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> that sounds absolutely, that sounds absolutely beautiful, and it is, it is something. Yes, that I, that I felt too as I speak to, to you know, to each yeah. of our guests here yeah. too. Just the energy of speaking to, to people who are, uh, you know, culturally sort of in the same space, even though we're very different across, you know, our, across our different Latina cultures. Still, there's, there's something about, there's something that unites us as Latinas in a way, you know, and that, that being in that space is sort of, I feel my shoulders sort of relax sometimes, you know, when we yes. speak, speak yes. and, and have, have things, certain things understood about backgrounds, about, um, yeah, that's really, really special. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to take you away a little bit from the fuzzy, warm, happy stuff <laughs> to something else that you said. You said, well, it's something else that you said earlier. It's not a bad thing, but it's something you said earlier that I was intrigued by because you actually spoke about it in an excited way. And I'm not used to seeing people talk about this in an excited way. And you said earlier in our conversation that you were excited about the evaluation, that you were excited about seeing down the line, uh, uh, the, the the evidence of the results the data. and all you know that. So, <laughs> and what is it that's so exciting for you about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love data. We're not we're not ourselves conducting um, a, a a data project right now. Um, however, I will say um, 
I'm also part of the steering committee of the National Latinx Theater Initiative. And in 2021, we released a survey to theatricals around the country to get a, get a sense of what state they were in, their needs. And one of the questions asked was, was what was the most, what, what is your most pressing need? And overwhelmingly, all of them responded, their number one pressing need was general operating support. Um, and, you know, we can talk extensively about uh, philanthropy in the U.S. and, and how it's, yeah. uh, it's disadvantaged um, organizations of color. And the second most pressing need they named was archival support. And so things like that are really exciting to me of having like yeah. facts, like I can, sh I can, sh I have something to show <laughs> for the work we are doing. Right. I think it's valuable regardless, even if we didn't have that. Um, but yeah. it's really, I, I find a lot of value in, in being able to have that, that data as well. Yeah. Um, and because of that, um, Abel Lopez, who's the associate producing director at Gala Hispanic Theater, and I um, have curated a series on HowlRound where Latinx theater leaders are interviewed by the younger generation. And that was a result of that survey that we were both part of that um, steering committee. And uh, we were just chatting and he was like, well, what if we did this series for HowlRound? Um, to as a as a way to intervene and to create um, to create archive and make it accessible for people and share the stories of of these leaders and their trajectory. That is beautiful, Jacqueline. Is is and is that available online for anyone who can who yes. wants to take a look at that? Yes. Yeah. And it and it sounds like the the evaluation or these these kinds of this kind of tracking in a way validates what you're doing and also it gives you ideas of which places to to sort of focus right. attention on right exactly right you know this archiving was certainly something we were thinking about and then it's brought even you know to the front of mind because of the survey and so it pushes us to to focus on that I was going to ask you that too. Is like as you're as you're looking at at these um, these studies and conducting your own work, you know, looking at these these interviews, um, are there things that surprised you uh, that people were concerned about or worried about, or did sort of confirm where you were coming from, or a mix of both? I think a mix of both. Um, so this survey that I'm I'm referencing shared a lot of valuable information, and. Uh, People were asked about artistic director salaries, managing director salaries, staff size, etc. And and most uh, theatrical leaders around the country have no salary to to maybe you know forty thousand dollars. I think if I'm remembering correctly, was the median salary. Um, and they and they've spent a lot of years doing this as volunteer work. And so while I knew that. It's different when you see, when you see um, the responses, you know, of, of like, oh, this is not just the one or two people I know who do this. This is everyone who responded to the survey. Yeah, um, it's very stark to see the, re the reality. Yes, yes. And, you know, speaks to inequities in funding. Um, For sure. Yeah. So uh, something else I, I wanted to ask you is in terms of your own work, what kinds of things do you find 
the most challenging or that you take you the most time to take deep breaths and process and move? What, what aspects of your work are you've talked about all the things you love. Uh, I'm sure you love the challenges too, but which ones take a little bit more processing time? Yeah, we, we love a challenge. Um, I mean, working in a, in a consensus-based model certainly comes with its challenges. And, you know, I, I've said, I've talked about all the people that are part of our committees um, and how we engage with them and how we make decisions. And also, I think in, in any uh, field, no matter what you do, not everyone is going to be pleased all the time. And that, and that can be challenging. And when, and when you're trying to serve a community, um, it can be really, it can be really hard. And, and something that my colleagues and I have had conversations about is, you know, we can't be all the things for all the people all the time. So even as we're planning this collaboratorio happening in June, and we've been having, you know, meetings for months about it, years, really, um, but we we always get a little bit distracted of like, but what if we do this? And what if we do that? And then we have to kind of reel it back of like, okay, we can't, maybe there can be a Collaboratorio 2.0 in two years and we can try that out. Um, so I think that's hard of, of decide, you know, intention, having intentional gatherings comes with sometimes being exclusive and in a way that is healthy. Um, and so that, I think that can be challenging. Yeah. And sometimes you have to be exclusive in order to be inclusive. And, right. and that can be yes. hard to, yes. to, to manage. Yes, 100%. So um, I have just a couple more questions for you. And one is now to put yourself in the role of a mentor as, uh, you know, effectively you are, as you're guiding all of these efforts. Um, you're helping all of these people achieve their dreams, right? And 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 set new directions for Latina theater. I want to ask you if there was a young person right now, you know, just uh, starting uh, her career in theater or in arts management and wanted to do something like what you do. What what would you tell her? What advice would you give her? Yeah, I would say be curious, um, be unapologetic about who you are. And if, you know, I say I'm a nerd, like be unapologetic about being so excited about whatever it is you love. Um, You know, theater is not the thing most people think of when they think about like six quote unquote successful careers, whatever that means. Um, And so I would say that and lean on your mentors, find people who believe in you. Um, and lean on them. I was so lucky to have incredible mentors throughout undergrad. Um, they're the reason I'm here today. So that's a, that's a common thread from everyone I've spoken to, and certainly from my own life as well. That mentors, people who make space for us and and take our hands and bring us along, are are so critical. Yes, yes, and don't be afraid to reach out to people too who. You, you think of as potential mentors, like they, they will probably be very excited to, to chat with you, grab a coffee. Um, so I think that's also important. One more thing I wanted to say about what I would say to another younger person is dare to imagine yourself in a world 
that does not yet exist or that you don't your, see yourself in. You know, you said, you know, it seems like that's what I did. And, and I think I did in a way, um, even though I think there, there are many leaders who have been here before me. Um, I just didn't have the access to know them growing up. And that's how the LTC began, right? Karen Zacarias and the other seven Latinx theater makers dared to imagine a world that did not yet exist, dared to imagine Latinx representation that did not yet exist in the American theater and created the Latinx theater commons um, to build that future for us. And so I strongly believe in, in imagining yourself in a place that isn't, isn't, doesn't seem possible and creating it. That's really good advice. Where were you when I was 20? That's what I want to know. Why didn't you give me this advice years ago? Took, took decades to figure all this out. Uh, so Jacqueline, the last the last two questions are, um, as I've shared with you, we ask each one of our guests, each one of our historias, to leave a question um, in the air for the next person or for one of the other uh, guests that we have um, on the on the show. So the question for you comes from Rocio Pichirili, who is a film producer from Argentina. So the question she left was, how do you manage, how do you navigate and manage times of uncertainty and the general, how do you manage your work in, in a framework of uncertainty and unexpected events, which I'm sure never occurs, never happens to you in your field, right? No, so. no, has not happened. <laughs> uncertainty. Um, whew, this is a tough question. I would say... Um, the way I deal with uncertainty is trusting in my collaborators, trusting that as things shift, as there's unknown ahead, um, we all are on the same page and everyone's supportive of each other. Um, you know, if, if tomorrow I were to say, uh, X thing is needed for Portland, Oregon, I have... 80 people I can call um, and and find a solution. So I think not not getting too narrow-minded about what the possibilities are, which is difficult. It's really difficult when you when you're trained a certain way and you work a certain way. Um, it's hard to to break out of that. But I think that is one of the the main things um, is leaning on collaborators um, and not not thinking there's only one way through this, um, but thinking through the multiple scenarios. Yeah. And that's even more difficult in, in conditions of uncertainty when what you want is to just find the answer to something, right? It's even harder to keep that open mind um, and leave that space for a little messiness while you're figuring things out. Um, and there's, I said I had only two questions for you. I lied now, you, but, but it's, it's your fault because it just occurred to me based on something you said. So, so you use this word trust and you've used it throughout our conversation in the context of the commons. So you have this group of people, right, that have agreed to trust each other and to trust each other's decisions if they're not in the room. How did how do you achieve that trust? Or is it a decision in advance that we're just going to trust unless something proves that we can't? What was that process like? Or where did that trust come from? Yeah. Um, well, I will, so I started this role two years ago. So part of it was already established. Part of that trust was already established. And then I think the other way is, you know, we have meetings, um, we have Zoom meetings where everyone is invited and we're very transparent about everything. 
Um, I send out weekly emails or bi-weekly emails now um, updating folks on the LTC. Um, and so I think the transparency that comes with being a, a steering committee or advisory committee member leads to trust because we're not, we're truly not holding anything back. Um, and so I think that helps um, people trust that everyone um, has everyone's best interest. And that, that takes courage, right? From all the participants, from you, certainly from all the right. participants, because you're going to be seeing warts and all, right? There's, no, there's You're not hiding right. behind any kind of, of screen right. or veneer or produce kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. That's, takes a lot of courage. Yeah. Um, so now, now for real, my final question for you is, uh, what question would you like to leave uh, for one of your colleagues here at Hectores? I would love to know how... Um, horizontal models, collaborative models show up in their own work um, and how they think it's beneficial for their communities. Um, and if not, if, if there's, there's a way that they think um, it could be implemented in their work. That's, that's a great question and we'll leave it. Some of our guests, uh, I think, will have more of a capacity to naturally have that kind of model. Others who are more maybe in a governmental structure might have a little more right. limitation. But I, but I love the provocation in your question is like, well, if, even if you can't, how are you figuring out a way to make that happen? I, I, I really right. like that. Right. Well, Jacqueline Flores, it's just been an absolute joy to speak with you. And, and thank you so much for your candor and for um, all the information you've shared. I'm sure so many people will find it. Um, really, really inspiring. Thank you, Jimena. It was such a joy to chat with you. This episode of Historias was presented by me, Jimena Varela, and produced by Anush Titanian. It was recorded in Washington, D.C. and New York, New York. The music was by Eli Almik. The song is called Hace Que Exista. Make it exist. The graphic design is by Bia Silva. This episode was mixed at the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. You may find us on YouTube at, at Gestoras and on Facebook and Instagram at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.